Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I'm just going to pick up where uh, where I left off two months ago. Uh, last time I spoke about Christ sending his people into the world from verses 18 and 19. If you remember, this is, this is the Lord's prayer just before he ascends the cross. And what is on his heart before he's about to pour out his blood to purchase my forgiveness, to buy your for, to, to buy my redemption, is not his own safety and, and not how much it was going to cost him. But we were on his heart. So follow along with me as I read John 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do, or which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone. That is, those eleven disciples that were with him in the room at the time of this prayer. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, you know. We heard the word that the apostles received from Christ Jesus. That self-same word that was passed down from ages and generations past. Think about it. Imagine it. 
2,000 years of the same message being passed along, person after person, village after village, hearing the word and believing, not believing the apostles in and of themselves, believing in me, said the Lord. For those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire, or it could be translated this way, Father, I will that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So now, brothers and sisters, where I actually want to start today is... Um, is in Romans chapter 8. We're going to come back to John chapter 17, so keep the finger there, but turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And this is going to help set the stage for us as we begin this morning. Romans chapter 8, just two verses, 29 and 30. For whom he, that is God, for whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What I want us to start by seeing is what is stated in verse 29. It says that God had a plan. That's what the word predestined means. He predestined, he planned that a certain group of people would be conformed to the image of his son. What that means is that God planned that he was going to raise up a people on the earth who were going to be image bearers, stamped to look like Christ, to emulate his purity, to emulate his holiness, to emulate his love and his righteousness. Before the world began, this is when that plan took place. And as we read that plan, we see in verse 30 it says, 
he began to put it into motion. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. In other words, he called them by his own powerful voice and brought them to himself through conversion. Whom he called, these he also justified. That means he declared them righteous in his sight. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now that word glorified is the full circle to what we read in verse 29. Verse 29, the plan. The plan was that God was going to raise up a people to look like Christ. And that group of people... Once they do fully look like Christ, that's what it means for them to be glorified. Does that make sense, brothers and sisters? When you and I, as Christians, by the work of God, according to His eternal plan, think about it. His eternal plan, which... He, he set in motion, not because of anything that was good in you or in me, but because of his own pure love and his own wise counsels. His plan to raise up a people to emulate him, to emulate his son. And that is called glorification. And... So that is essentially the topic that we're going to be looking back here in John 17. We're going to be looking at the topic of the Christian hope of glory. The Christian hope of glory. In other words, if you're a Christian, God has made you a part of this plan. He has predestined that you, as a believer would be stamped with the image of his own son. That's what, that's what that hope of glory is. So let's look at this first part um, that we read in verse 22 of John 17. Verse 22 in John 17 says this. In the glory, note that word glory, in the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one we have a couple questions to ask first the first question is this what does it mean for the son of God to be given glory what does it mean for the son of God to be given glory he says in verse 22, In the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, one of the things that you know is that the Lord Jesus Christ did not just come to preach God. He came as God. That's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what we read in Colossians chapter 1 before we started the sermon. It said that he was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, all creation came from him. You remember that when I paused and noted 
that, that verse went on to say that all things were created by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says of Jesus Christ that he is the brightness of his glory. Jesus Christ is the brightness of the glory of the Father. Do you want to know what God looks like, brothers and sisters? It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the brightness of his glory. But now we have a question here, because if we know anything about the Bible, we know that no one can add to God's glory. If God is an infinite being, and if God doesn't need anything, then that means that no one could add to his glory. So why does the Son of God in verse 22 say, that the glory which you gave me, how is it that the Son of God is being given glory? We answer that in this way. Because at this point in his life, you know that the Son of God is not, on, is not in heaven. He's on earth. And he's not on earth as a spirit or as a ghost or any such thing. He's on earth as a man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. We call that the incarnation. He's on earth as the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, says the Scripture. So this glory of which he speaks in verse 22 is, his, is the glory which is given to him as the God-man. As the Christ, as the Christ, he is given a specific glory. Now the next question is this, what is that glory? What glory could the Son of Man be given? Turn over to verse 23. He describes it in this way. I'll actually start in verse 22. He says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and here it is, you in me. You in me. You in me. That is the glory of which Christ speaks in verse 22. The glory which you gave me, I have given them. Well, what glory is that? The glory is that the Father is in Christ. You in me. Now, I need to try to, I need to, try to explain this a little more, so, so hang tight with me. Um, another way that we can say it is like this. God is revealed in Christ, not only because Christ is God, but also because he is the man in whom God is fully revealed. Now, hopefully that made sense, because both parts of that are essential. 
Christ fully reveals God because he is God. But Christ also fully reveals God because he is the man in whom God is fully revealed. He is the God-man. So I want to point this out to you in another section of the scripture. Keep your finger there in John 17 and turn a couple pages to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says this. He says, For in him... In Christ, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There are important words that we have to note there. The first is that it's in Christ that this is happening. It's in Christ. That's very similar to what it says in John 17. You in me is what the Lord said in verse 23 of John 17. For in him dwells how much? All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means the infinitude of the divine nature. That means the the vast infinity of what it means to be God incomprehensible, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all of that comprehended into a finite body. You see that last word in verse 9? God does not have a body. It says in John chapter 4, it says God is spirit. God does not have a body as you and I have. The confessions of old said, God is without body, parts, or passions. He's not like us in that way. So why then, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, does the Apostle Paul say that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? Because in the incarnation, God took on a body. God the Spirit took on a body. Not God the third person of the Trinity. Not God the Holy Spirit who took on the body. Not even God the first person. God the second person. Who once was pure spirit took on a body. Now my friends, if that baffles your brain a little bit and if that confuses you you're thinking about this rightly if all of this makes sense to you you're not understanding how is it that God could be comprehended in a body but all that to say this This is a good way of explaining what the Lord is talking about. John chapter 17, verse 2. The glory that you have given me. Well, what glory is that? The glory being that as God, he is possessive of all the glories of deity. 
but also as man. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The glory that you have given me. The glory that you have given me. So hopefully that makes sense. Now, turning back to John chapter 17 and verse 22, we have a second point to look at. What is Christ going to do with this glory? What is Christ going to do with this glory? He says, in the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. So not only do we see that Christ was given a glory, we also see that Christ gives glory. My friend, how do those words just roll off my tongue like it's something normal to say? Do we understand what that means? The glory which you have given me, I have given them? I have been, I have been given glory? the Son of God? What does that mean? That's a fantastic question. So let's consider it. What it means is this. We have to go back to, to the first point. What was the glory which, which Christ was given of the Father? The glory which Christ was given of the Father was the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. The the God, God being revealed in Christ, that was the glory of which he speaks. So the glory then that he's passing on to you and me is that he is going to reveal himself through us. Look over at verse 23. I in them and you in me. Hopefully that clarifies then why we started with Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, remember the plan. God made a plan that he was going to create a people to emulate his son, to look like his son. And when his son came to earth and became a man, in that man, all the all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. You in me is what he said. And now, as he dwells in us, verse 23, that is the glory which he gives to us. That is what Paul calls in Romans 8, glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hopefully this is making some sense. Um, so I want you to see I want you to see how this comes about. How how look look at um look at verse twenty one. I'll start in verse twenty. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one. How? In us. In us. Note those words. If you're a Christian, you have been united. You have been united, brought into fellowship with the everlasting God. says in 1 John 1.5 it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all there's no impurity anywhere in thought or in heart or in possibility no darkness at all but the honest man or woman or child looks within his heart in his mind, in his body, and he knows that he is darkness. He is darkness, and yet, and yet the God who is light invites we who dwell in the darkness to come and to have fellowship with him. Maybe the illustration of offends you but we're more like cockroaches than we are like angels you know cockroaches love the darkness as soon as the light comes on as soon as as soon as someone tries to expose the wickedness of our hearts we run away because we hate seeing the ugliness of the darkness there and we scurry away into the light we don't like being exposed But in the gospel, he who is the way, the truth, and the life came to earth to save the likes of you and I, to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to bring us into fellowship with himself. That's the whole point of the cross, my friends. We know that. The whole point of the cross, that's God's legal way of providing forgiveness of sins. How was God going to not throw you into hell? How was God going to spare me from the flames? It was because of the cross. Because Jesus Christ has paid for my sins already. That is why I, who once was a child of the darkness, can now live in the light of God and be in Christ and experience this glory that he gives. Look over at John 15 and verse 4. John 15 and verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ also says this. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. In other words, live in me, says Christ. Live in Child of God, live in Christ. In other words, make your home there. Make it your habit to be close to him. Make it your habit to rely upon him. Abide in him. Abide in him. Look over at John 17 and verse 23. John 17, 23. 
I in them, he says, and you in me. Now, what that means is this. When he says, I in them, he's speaking of himself. I in these people whom you have given me. And then when he says, you in me, he's speaking of the Father. So what we have here is Christ dwelling in his people, the Father dwelling in Christ, and therefore the Father dwelling in you and I. This is the glory of which he speaks in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. I in them, and you in me. So, I want to fill this out a little bit more. Turn over to Colossians 2 again. Colossians 2, in verse 9. Now, we were just there. But I'm going to read 9 and 10 this time. It says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, Christian, are complete in him. And you are complete in him. Why are you complete in him? Because you're in him. But why are you complete in Him? Because if you're in Him, if you're in Him, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, then what else could you ask for? I, I, really, I really want you to try to understand this, because so many people think they need something other than Christ. So many people think they need Christ and something else in order to actually be fulfilled, in order to actually attain what they're after. They think, surely I need to add some good works in order to make it perfect. Surely I need to add a little bit of philosophy to Christianity in order, in order for, for it to be a more perfect system than it already is. Surely I need to add a little bit of science. Surely I need to add a little bit of something. But my friends, if Christ, if in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and if you are in him, well, guess what? You're complete in him. And you know what? As a Christian, you know that, don't you? We know that. We know that to the rest of the world, think about this, to the rest of the world, we look like normal, everyday people. To the rest of the world, when we go up and when we wake up and go to our jobs, when we wake up and start vacuuming or, or, or think about where the next paycheck is going to come from or what have you, to the rest of the world, and even to ourselves sometimes, we look very normal. But according to verses 9 and 10, we've been completed in Him, and we lack nothing. We lack nothing. We lack nothing in Christ. If you're in Christ, 
You're more than a polluted mortal. You're a child of God. You're His workmanship in Christ. So I'll ask you now, what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? You can't improve upon perfection, you know. If something is complete, you can't become more complete. If Christ is the thing that makes you complete, you can't add to it to become more complete. It would be an insult to him to try to do so. But as Christians, we know, don't we? We know that he's enough. We know that he's more than enough. Being in him, he's all that we need. I have a sign hanging up in my house by Charles Spurgeon. And he said, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. Is he everything to you? Is he everything to you? Not is he most of the things to you. Is he everything? In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. a page to the left to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25. The Apostle Paul is speaking about his ministry and he says, I am a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. A mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints, that is to Christians, this gospel, this glorious gospel, which was for a long time taught in the Old Testament, but not very clear from the time of Adam to Moses to David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all the way through. It was there, but in dark, in hidden form, but in the gospel and in the time of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is shown forth brightly as the sun it has been revealed to his saints now look at this verse 27 to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory notice that word glory remember that's the word that we're talking about in John 17 the glory which you have given me I have given them to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is that? What are the riches of the glory which is Christ in you? The hope of glory. Well, why does he call it a hope of glory? He calls it a hope of glory, not, not, like, a, not like a child who hopes to be a basketball player one day. It's called, it's called the hope of glory because it is actually going to come to fruition. We just read in Colossians chapter 2 that we are in Christ. We're already in Him. We're already united with Him. 
We know the fullness of forgiveness and redemption. But it is also a hope because, because what we will be later is going to be even more glorious than it already is now. We have the first installments now. That's why it's the hope of glory. It's the seed planted inside of us, which is one day going to sprout forth into a mighty tree. Turn over to 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John, chapter 3. And we'll see what John writes about it. The same thing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. You see, my brothers and sisters, it's not that one day you're going to be a child of God. It's not like you and I are peasants now and one day we're going to we're going to be brought into the kingdom to be adopted into the child uh, as children of God. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now, we might not look like it. We might not we might not look like it to the to the average eye. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him. That's the, that's the tree being brought forth. That's the plan in Romans 8 being brought to fruition. That's the glory which Christ has given to his people in John chapter 22 sprouting forth. One day, one day, my friend, you and I were going to be like him. The first installment, Colossians chapter 1, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. It's going to come. It's there. It's there now, hidden away, and we don't yet see it in all of its fullness. But one day, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Why? Why are we going to be like him? How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? What's he going to do? Exactly, very simple. It says, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure this is making some, some sense to you my friends, the glory that awaits Christians the glory that awaits Christians is to one day to be fully like Christ to reflect him in his holiness to reflect him in his righteousness to reflect him in, in, in his love right now it's not yet revealed what we're going to be but it's there in seed form if you're in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Or are you looking to Christ and something else? 
Are you looking for Christ and something else to complete it? You can't, you can't do it. It's only in Christ. Turn over to another passage here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is another passage that the Apostle Paul wrote. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he put, he put it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding. Now there's, there's that theme again that we just read in 1 John. Did you note that? It said in 1 John that we will be like him because we're going to see him. We're going to behold him. That's how we're going to be made like him. So here too, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, but we all with unveiled face, in other words, our eyeballs aren't covered anymore. The veil is lifted off with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. What are we beholding? The glory, there's that word again, beholding the glory of the Lord. What's happening as we're beholding the glory of the Lord? Are being transformed into what? The same image. Well, the same image of what? What are we beholding? We're beholding the glory of the Lord. It's what he just said in verse 18. Beholding the glory of the Lord because the veil is taken away. And as we're beholding the glory of the Lord, you know what's happening? You're becoming like him. You're becoming like him as you look at him. I can't see him with my physical eyes, you're saying. You don't have to see him with your physical eyes. You behold him by faith in the word. Behold in my faith in you, in the word, and you're being transformed as you behold. And how, who, who is bringing this to pass? Who is bringing this to pass? Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God Almighty is bringing this to pass in the life of his children. So hopefully... Hopefully these dots are starting to connect for you. Hopefully these dots are, are coming to pass. Let's turn back to John 17 and see if this is making a little more sense. John 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in love. Now we're going to continue that on in just a bit. But we need to go on to our third point, which deals with another question. If you were reading that passage, you see the theme of unity coming up a lot, don't you? The theme of unity. Look over at verse 11. That's where it starts. At the end of 
verse 11. It says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Why? That they may be one. One in what way? One as we are. In other words, this unity of which he speaks is like the unity between the Father and the Son. Now we're going to come back to that in a minute because it needs some explaining. But look down at verse 21. That we all be one. Well, in what way? As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That's what the oneness is going to look like, and that's how the oneness is brought about. Look down at verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. Once more, in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So now we have to ask this question. Okay, so we have learned a lot about the glorification of the saints. We know that God has a plan to make his saints to look like his son. And that that is brought about because of our union with Christ I in them, you in me, John 15, abide in me, and I in you. But what does this unity have to do with it all? Well, the first thing we need to know is what he, what it, what he's not praying for, okay? Uh, this is important because a lot of people might use these verses to say, you know what? Jesus is just very concerned that all of his people are unified. So what we need to do, some people will say, is set aside our doctrinal differences and just be unified. But the question is, is that what Christ is teaching here in John 17? Is he saying, forget doctrine, just make my people to be friends with each other. Forget the Bible, just let these people be nice and get on with the work together. Is that what he's saying? Or, perhaps even more uh, poignant to this section of the country in which you live, did you notice that this unity is compared to the unity between the Father and the Son? Take, for example, verse 21, that they all may be one. Well, how? As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The question that we need to ask is, okay, is this teaching some sort of New Age doctrine that people are going to be absorbed into God. Is this basically teaching nirvana? And we know the answers to these questions, but we might not know how to explain them. So let me try to explain them. Um, one, let me say, he's not teaching nirvana. He's not teaching nirvana because of a couple of reasons. One, you can see very clearly 
that as Jesus Christ is praying here, he's, he's praying about us and them. In other words, you and I, Father, and them. In other words, so just look at verse 31 again. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they, that they also may be one in us. So even in our union with God, even as we've been connected with him by the blood of Christ, there is still a distinction. There's still an us and a them. Do you see that in the text? There's an us and a them. Another way that might be easier to, to try to think about it is the book of Revelation. If you turn over to the book of Revelation, even when you're in heaven, you see the people who are in heaven worshiping God. And you never see God worshiping them. Why? Because there's always a distinction between God and the things that he has made. Um, so, that, that, that answers the first question. He's not talking about nirvana. Well, so then is he saying just set aside the doctrine and become friends with one another? No, he's not, he's not talking about that either. And, and how I want to explain this to you actually lies in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3. Listen to what the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says. He says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now notice that word keep. It doesn't say endeavoring to create or endeavoring to make, but endeavoring to keep. In other words, it's already there, and you've got to hang on to it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay? Verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, the reason why those verses are interesting for our particular, for our particular cultural context is most people, when they talk about unity, is they say, set aside the doctrine, set aside the doctrine, and just be friends. But if you look in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, he says, keep the unity. Well, what kind of unity? That's a very important question. What kind of unity? Well, the unity that is defined by the Spirit of God. You see that? The unity of the Spirit. So not just any old unity, it is the unity of the Spirit. He goes on to say that there is one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So in other words, 
Okay, here's the here's the point. Biblical unity is not unity in spite of truth. It is unity on the truth. Hopefully that makes sense. It's unity around one Lord. It's unity around one spirit. It's unity around one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's the unity of the spirit of which he speaks. Okay, so that was an aside, and I know I need to hurry on, so just just hang tight. I'm going to try to wrap this up for us here as quick as I can, um, and we don't have that much more to go. So, so that's what he doesn't mean. Christ isn't talking about nirvana, and he's not and he's not talking about setting aside doctrine in order to just be friends with each other. So then, what does he ask for? Well. This unity is a unity of purpose and of act. A unity of purpose and of act. Let me explain. In John chapter 17, as you read the passage, what you see is that the Father and the Son, they are in lockstep with each other in order to accomplish certain purposes and in order to do certain things. They have the same purposes and the same acts. So look in John 17 and verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. There's an act. Why? That your Son may glorify you. So you see this same purpose and the same act. Look at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh. Well, why did you give him authority over all flesh? That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. In other words, father and son are, are working in step again. That's through the whole chapter as you read it. So what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is that as the father and as the son are working together for a specific purpose and in specific acts, track with me now, those same purposes and acts have been passed on to Christians. God is using Christians to fulfill those same kinds of things. So look, for example, down at verse 8. It says, I have given to them the words which you have given to me. Well, look over at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. So you see the transition? There was a group of people in verse 8 who had been given the word, and now in verse 20, those same people are passing on the word. They have been brought into this work. It is work of passing on the word. Look up at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So, so what this means is that this is that this purpose and this act, this oneness of which Christ speaks in in John 17, that they may be one in us, 
Look at verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. What does that mean? I'm arguing that that means that Christians have been brought in in order to also work for the purposes of God. Hopefully that's clear. The second thing is that not only is it a, uni uh, a unity of person, uh, purpose and act, but it is also a, un a unity of reflection. A unity of reflection. Um, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11. So hang tight with me, my friends. Like I said, I know this is hard, hard preaching today. But if we pay attention, we will reap. So we've got just a little bit longer. I do appreciate your patience, though. Ephesians 4, 11. We're going to read about this unity of reflection. The Apostle Paul writes, And he gave some to be apostles, some of prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Well, why did he give these people? Equipment of the saints for the work of ministry. Well, what does that look like? What is this ministry? For the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, here's the situation. God has given certain offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, in order to equip everyday Christians for the ministry. Well, what is that ministry? For, for building up the body of Christ. Like a building. Building up the body. Or... Or exactly like a body, in order to use the Lord's metaphor here. Well, what, what does that look like? How does the body build itself up? Look at verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there are a lot of words there, but look at verse 13. Look at it. It says, the body is building itself up. There's a goal. What is the goal? The goal is the unity of the faith. The goal is the knowledge of the Son of God. The goal is, look at this, a perfect man. You remember how back in John 17, the Lord prayed in verse 23 that they may be perfect in one? A perfect man. Well, what does that perfect man look like? That perfect man looks like this. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. In other words, 
as the body builds itself up, what's the end result? A church that looks like Christ together, one man, one body reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where we end. Back in John 17. As he's talking about this glorification of his people. Bringing them in to share his work. Bringing them into union with himself to reflect him. To reflect him. What is the goal? Verse 21 that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Why? That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see the goal? That God would be glorified. That God would be glorified as the world watches and sees what he has done in a group of people like you and me who to the normal eye looks so average. Look at it again. In verse 23 it says, I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And we're going to come back to that verse the next time I preach. And we're just going to think about uh, being loved in the same way in which the Father has loved the Son. But here's, here's where I want to end. Here's where I want to end. Acts chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. When the enemies of the church... When the enemies of the church arrested Peter and John, do you remember what it says about them? It says that they knew that they had been with Jesus. That's what we're talking about. To the watching world, even to the enemies of the church, to the people who want to see us destroyed, because we are the bigots, because we are those who are so intolerant, because we are those who are turning the systems of the world upside down, who won't stop talking about how Jesus Christ has shed his blood to forgive the sins of sinners, because we are a people who say that Christ and Christ alone can save, because we are a people who are filled with love for each other, who are filled with righteousness, who are filled with holiness and a desire to grow, to look more and more like the Son of God, as the world watches that, one thing they know, that people has been with Jesus. That's what he's talking about here in John 17, my friends. And I want to understand it more than I understand it now. And 
I want you to understand it more as well. But here's where we are. And with that, let's pray. Oh, my gracious Heavenly Father, these things are these things are so lofty, so high, so complicated. And I pray that in spite of my poor teaching and in spite of my poor applications and in spite of my poor comprehension and poor understanding that you would fill us all with the hope of the glory to which you have called us. Lord, I do pray that if any here does not yet know this hope, that if any here has not yet been complete in Christ, that you would bring them to yourself this very day. Be saved to the glory of your name. It's in Christ Jesus that we ask in giving our thanks.